Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and this show is all about the creative process of writing music. Today's guest is Jason Graves, the composer behind some of the biggest video games out there, from the Dead Space series to the Tomb Raider reboot. Jason shares a ton of great insights into his composing process, including his interesting approach to the game Evolve. Since the player in that game could play as either a giant monster or a human hunter, the designers wanted Jason to create two distinct scores. And they wanted them to sound different. You heard it and you knew that was the monster. You heard the other score, you knew those were the hunters. But they also wanted them to sound like they came from the same universe. While still being completely unique and not sounding like anything else. (laughs) Jason also talks about what he learned from intensely studying John Williams' scores. And that's when I first started realizing how much of his stuff was really jazz-based. Even the action stuff is actually jazz. And that's how he started. He was a pianist. He was a amazing, he still is, an amazing pianist. All that and more coming up. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. Thanks to my patron, Michael Chadwick, who's been a longtime fan and decided to become a patron at the $3 per episode level. Here's your cheesy jingle, Mike. California techie by day, rock guitarist by night. Michael Chadwick's one part nerdy and one part cool as ice. He was a Microsoft certified professional when he was a kid. And though he never broke a bone, it doesn't mean he hasn't lived. Michael Chadwick's a racquetball master and a rock climber too. He travels around the world with his family. Maybe he'll visit you. Maybe he'll visit you. I actually interviewed Mike back in episode 61 about his creation of video game music for games that don't actually exist. You can find that episode, along with all the other ones, at ComposerQuest.com. ComposerQuest is totally listener-supported, so if you want to help keep the show running, please consider becoming a patron. Visit Patreon.com Charlie for details. One last announcement. Our game jam is happening very soon. We'll be pairing up composers with developers, artists, sound designers, etc. to create new games in one week. The finished games will be showcased at the Gamers Rhapsody Convention here in Minnesota on November 13th at 7pm. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, October 14th, this is the last night to sign up, so get your name on the list at composerquest.com slash quest16. If you missed the sign-up deadline, make sure to get on my mailing list at composerquest.com slash email to be notified of future composing quests like this. Okay, let's get on to my interview with Jason Graves. We started out talking about his recent rhythm composition workshop. Hope you enjoy. I saw that you led a rhythm and percussion composition workshop in in germany yeah oh that was germany okay yeah cool what what kind of things were you teaching people there 
Well, that was actually um, Helga, the guy that organizes Soundtrack Cologne every year. His idea was how to write for percussion from a drummer's perspective as opposed to relying on loops and things like that that so many composers today have at their fingertips where literally you just hold down one key. I mean, my six-year-old daughter, when she was six, would do this and have all kinds of fun. And you get these amazing sounds, but it's the same sounds that everybody else has. So Helga was interested in how to write for percussion. But I also wanted to talk a lot about kind of writing from a drummer's standpoint. Like writing with the mindset of rhythm before you started writing the melody or the chord progression or anything like that. And then we also spent some time talking about percussion is definitely not limited to just drums. It doesn't have to be a shaker for a shaker part. You know, you can... we had a bass drum mallet on a chair and we had some percussion instruments there, but we also used a lot of the non, the things around the conference room just, just for fun and not in a kind of, you know, not in a Broadway stomp sort of way in a very kind of cool, uh, at least I hope it was cool, you know, minimalist kind of like, I don't know what that sound is, but it sounds interesting. It doesn't sound like a shaker. It sounds like something else. So that was kind of the, the idea overall. Cool. What were people commenting about like that they were learning or maybe struggling with (laughs) well there were three drummers out of the i think we had maybe 35 or 40 people show up so three guys were drummers and they enjoyed hearing what i've come to find out myself in the last 10 years um you know being a drummer isn't a bad thing despite all the jokes and everything else being a drummer and being a composer actually has its advantages especially In today's world, with the music the way it is, it's very band-oriented, rhythm-driven. Even if it's an orchestra, it's got a lot of pulse and energy going on. So I think they enjoyed hearing another drummer talk about that. And then everybody else that weren't drummers, I think the rhythm thing intrigued them. But when I started pulling up sequences from Tomb Raider or Dead Space, things that I had done in my studio as a one-man kind of orchestra, that's when everyone started, their ears started perking up a little bit and they were getting excited. Because I think as a composer, anyone trying to write music these days, that's all you do is you stare at your computer screen. So to be able to see someone else's computer screen, especially if it's a screen of a piece of music maybe that you know or recognize, then that's exciting because that's something you can immediately identify with. It's like, I know that piece and there's the notes. That's neat because he did it this way and then there's that. And I tried to deconstruct it for them a little bit and explain my thought process because both of the cues I played were very rhythmically based. Cool. What kind of tips do you have for composers who are wondering where to start with rhythm? Because, I mean, in music school you learn the in-depth version of harmony and that kind of theory, but I don't know, like the rhythmic side of it kind of gets thrown to the wayside. It really does. Um, What it comes down to for me, it's just like harmony and, and orchestration and everything else. You really have to understand what the rules are, you know, learning four part counterpoint for Bach chorales in college. Did that serve me for anything that I'm doing now? Um, 
Maybe when I was writing some music for The Order, that helped a little bit, but that's probably the first game that I've been able to apply that kind of knowledge to. More importantly, what I learned in college was, here are all the rules, and then when I got out of college, I proceeded to start breaking every one. (laughs) But I already understood why the rules were there. And the same thing goes with rhythm. If you talk about pop music or dance music, you've got four-bar phrases, four beats per measure. That's how we're used to hearing things. So if I were getting started, I would start out with a piece like that and then occasionally, you know, interject some things that aren't expected. Even if it's just in a four-bar phrase, you know, you put an extra measure at the end of the phrase or you put an extra couple of beats at the end of one of the bars. Just a little thing here and there to get you out of that four-bar phrase mentality. And that's the curse of all these sample libraries that are absolutely fantastic. They have to be written with four-bar regular phrases in mind, just because that's the basic rule. And then, even if I'm using those, um, I'll go in and, you know, almost like stutter them on the keyboard and have them start at different times and make irregular phrases out of them. And just like harmony and melody, it's one of those things, you're trapped in your own mental prison of like how you hear things in your head especially with rhythm, and you're listening to this four-bar percussion loop that has a little fill at the end, and of course you're, you feel like you have to write to that because you can't take the fill at the end and scoot it any earlier. But you can if you record it and you start messing with it, or if you have something like some of Heaviosity stuff is fantastic because they have breakout menus. So the little fill sound is actually in a completely different octave, so you can put that in another place or leave it out altogether. So it's all about shaking it up and and changing it and a lot of times today I'm the game I'm working on right now is almost all rhythm there's hardly any tone whatsoever and I've kind of hit my stride in figuring out how to knock out 3 or 4 minutes of music in a day and it's all combat like 160 beats per minute crazy fast combat but the first thing I do is I figure out the rhythm and I'll just go in literally and and randomly you know, at the end of a phrase, add an extra couple of beats. At the end of another phrase, make it two measures longer. Another phrase, I'll just throw in a different meter change to make it different. And and when I play it with just the clicks, it feels all wrong. But after an hour or two, when I've started recording some percussion in there, you get used to hearing the way it sounds. And it becomes like, well, of course it's that way. That's the way it should be. Because now you can hear it, you know, because you've been hearing it for the last two or three hours. And it's just a matter of of breaking tradition, really. And and you don't have to, it doesn't have to be some crazy arrhythmic 20th century masterpiece. It can be a drum kit playing a beat and there's a little phrase here and there. Um, you know, I mean, for pop music, I love the Foo Fighters. So mm. I love the way Dave Grohl writes. He's a drummer and he writes for band the way a drummer would write. All the guitar parts are very rhythmic. And a lot of times he has phrases and things um, what is it? Um, uh, Congregation, off the newest album. Congregation has this bridge in the middle of it that goes to minor, and, and it builds and it builds and it builds very Foo Fighters-esque, and I always love the way that it built, and I never realized why it felt like it had so much energy to it, and he was doing three-bar phrases. The chords were changing. It was three chords, one chord every bar, and it was a three-bar phrase that built for the entire bridge. And then it went back into the main riff, and it was back to four-bar phrases. But just going to three bars made it feel 
like it had more energy to it. And you don't even notice it if it's done the right way. That's the trick. Hmm. That's cool. I'm going to have to listen back to Foo Fighters now. Mm. It's been a while. <laughs> so when you're doing these odd rhythmic things, do you ever run, run into issues uh, when you're trying to have like more interactive style music of switching to different pieces or different tracks? How do you deal with that? There are basically two answers for that. So one of them would be if I was writing, you know, two or three different layers of music where the first layer is a piece that is maybe exploration and the second layer is another piece, meaning these are complete pieces of music, combat. And then the third layer is something else besides exploration and combat. A lot of times those are going to be playing independent of each other, so I don't need to worry about how they overlap. Other times, the developer wants to have control and really be able to crossfade them over, you know, 10 seconds or something. So then, even though all of those three layers are whole individual pieces, they need to be able to stack on top of each other, even if it's not going to play like that all the time. And then it's just a matter of taking that same skeleton that I create at the beginning with all those crazy meter changes and phrases. I put markers in where there's a break and I'll have the, everything stop for a bar or two and then it kind of builds back up and then another marker where it starts again. So all three pieces will have that same skeleton, that same marker structure, even if the exploration feels like it's a halftime piece and the combat feels like it's double time. They're still following the same basic changes in terms of rhythm. And, and a lot of times, other than that, I won't keep them too similar because the idea is they're supposed to sound as different as they can while still working together. Sure. I was listening to your talk with Emily Reese on her show about mm-hmm. um, the Until Dawn and how you, you used only like three different BPMs for, the, for all of your samples. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Could you kind of explain that a little bit? How you? Well, that that is a um, uh, what do you call this? That's like a making the most of your material trick that I've done in the past with other games. Uh, again, it's more about the rhythm than anything else, and this would work if you have a lot of non-tonal or atonal stuff, such as horror music. Works great because. The more it conflicts and doesn't share keys, you know, the scarier and more dysfunctional it's going to sound. doesn't really work so much if you're doing like a, a kid's panda bear game or something, because <laughs> then you start getting all these odd notes. But with Until Dawn, it was very scary. A lot of aleatoric stuff. And I wanted to make sure that we, we knew we were going to have just hours and hours and hours and hours and I mean so much more music in the final version than we were ever going to have time to record probably three or four times more than I've done before and Dead Space I did a lot of music for Dead Space but it had interactive layers so you could stretch it out a lot that way because one layer would play for a while and then another layer would come up and then we'd go back to the first layer and then the fourth layer and two minutes of music could get stretched into ten minutes but until dawn is very cinematic and everything's done to picture. There's no layers every now and then when we need it, but for the most part, it's scored to picture. So we needed a way, we didn't need it, but I wanted a way to 
get the most variety out of the tracks. So we had um, 60 BPM, 90 BPM, 120 BPM. Now those are three core, like percussion rhythm wise, you could drop those all on top of each other and they all work together. And then we had an extra one that I believe was 150 or 160. It was kind of the, the only odd man out that wasn't some sort of a ratio to the other ones, but that was the super fast chase so the idea was it felt like it didn't go with the other one. So when that one started playing, I mean, you knew automatically that something bad was going on. So we had those three, 60, 90, and 120, um, and probably half the elements of the music tracks that I did were just percussion. So they were non-pitched. So really, you could take some scary stuff from a slow 60 BPM exploration cue and drop in 120 BPM percussion on top of it, and it would it would line up a lot of the times. Um, we also had lots of regular phrases for Until Dawn. Uh, it ended up working out with that sort of a cross-pollinization, because it would be four-bar phrases that would match up even if the tempos were different. But the reason I chose regular phrases is just the game. Um, it's not something like Dead Space, where there are these crazy necromorphs and you're constantly freaked out and off off your game and you don't really know what's going to happen. Until Dawn's a lot more methodical and a lot more... Even when the killer is chasing after you, like the um, the opening bathtub spa scene with Sam and the guy with the freaky... Uh, mask on that has been out for like a year now so everyone's seen it and I'm not giving any spoilers but he's very methodical he's not chasing her he's just like walking and talking in this super creepy voice and that's almost scarier so we wanted the music to be very fixed in in how it felt we wanted you to feel the phrases turn over and kind of expect something and then when we turn it a little bit it, it means a little more um, so it ended up working working pretty well I think we got uh, close to 15 hours of music scored to picture in the game out of, you know, what must have been, you know, two or three hours of kind of recording studio stuff. project that I, I thought was interesting was your uh, your music for Evolve because the the game concept is really cool. It's like four players act as the humans conquering like a Godzilla type mm-hmm. creature but the players can also play as that Godzilla type creature and you were saying you, you have different soundtracks for each experience. Maybe you could Kind of explain how that, how you approach those differently. I thought that was genius on the developer's part. 
because most of the time, I would assume there wouldn't be enough manpower or time at the end of the project to implement two different scores. It's that's a lot. I mean, that that takes a lot of dedication on the front end to get the composer to do that, and then on the back end to get it all implemented. But that's what they wanted to do from the very beginning. So it was something that I had in mind even when I did the very first demo for them. There were two separate scores, and they wanted them to sound different. Uh, you, you heard it, and you knew that was the monster. You heard the other score. You knew those were the hunters. But they also wanted them to sound like they came from the same universe, while still being completely unique and not sounding like anything else. <laughs> so that's that's, you know... I mean, shoot for the moon, right? That's it, it's like when I used to do a lot of these World War II um, orchestral soundtracks, and they'd say, oh, we want a theme reminiscent of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. Pick <laughs> one of the most iconic, well-known melodies in the history of, of cinematic music and, and say, you know, we want something kind of like this. But you, shoot, you aim big, and then it's, it's an example. So that's more or less what they wanted. And from there, it was really a matter of distilling the differences between the two sides. You've got one giant Hulk-like Goliath monster. Um, the, the music for the monster side was a lot slower and heavier. It had a lot of weight to it. And it was a lot more organic. Even if it was processed with a bunch of stuff I have here in the studio, it was me you know, playing things and then running them through my guitar rig or maybe some effects on the computer. Um, and some big drums, uh, big live drums that, that gave it a lot of weight and, and kind of a natural feel. And then for the hunters, Pretty much the opposite. They're they're lighter and faster, uh, more electronic. They have uh, more synthesizer stuff in them, and they're also uh, more kind of synth percussion oriented, very techy sounding. And the monster was like, rhythm-wise, that was the first thing I did, of course. The monster was all these odd meters and weird phrases, and you never really knew where the beat was going to fall. And the hunters were the exact opposite. Very, very strict, like, even if it was 7-8, it was, you know, four-bar phrases of 7-8. And you, you always kind of knew where it was going. It felt very planned and organized, which is ultimately the way the hunter should be. The monster felt very... And by felt, I mean sounded organic and kind of naturally stream of conscious flowing in a sort of way. Because that's what I do. I just get my, get behind the toms and just play something for a minute or two and go through the meter changes in my head and then go back to the computer and figure out what they were and write the cue based on that. Hmm. So when the other, like, let's say you're playing as a human, when the creature comes into view... 
and it's like a battle mode, do you start to hear themes from the creature bleed over, or how do you deal with it's, that? I know that was there were a lot of questions like that, and most of most of the score is stingers. And really, I only call them stingers because they would play and fade out. I didn't mean they were short, though. Sometimes it was a 30-second stinger, air quotes there, since no one else can see that but you. <laughs> It'd be a 30-second piece of music that just had a really long tail on it. We never had any loops that played. So uh, I was wondering the same thing. If we're in combat mode, do I bring the toms in, like the monster toms? And we decided it made a lot more sense if... It was just super clear-cut, and we kept everything fairly separated because most of the time you're going to be battling stuff. So the sounds stayed on their own sides, but there was lots and lots of super short and super long stinger combinations that would allow even the four players that play as the hunters each... Now, if they're all in the same place battling the same monster, they're going to hear the same soundtrack. But if they're in four different areas of the map, they're getting four completely different scores hmm. because it's so stinger-based. I mean, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of stingers and variations of all of those stingers. That's what was so cool. It was anywhere between four to six variations of each, like, birds startled in nearby tree stinger. Like, I think I did three or four of those. So even if it happened three times in a row, you'd hear a little bit different music that played. It was it was really cool. I liked your titles for those those tracks you came <laughs> up with, too. Mommy's Very Angry and uh, Looks Like Meat's Back on the Menu. Okay, <laughs> so you, you got those references then. Um, yeah, wait, wait, what was... What was the meats back on the menu from? Oh, come on. Looks like meats back on the menu, boys. Uh, I should know this. Come on. I can, uh, it's from Lord of the Rings. The Two Towers. That? Oh, that's right. The... With Merry and Pippin on the back yeah. of the Urukais. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're, they're arguing over eating them. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> the nerds out there will be disappointed. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Well, you can edit that part and make yourself sound really smart. <laughs> oh, I usually do, so. <laughs> um, let's see. I was uh, playing Dead Space 2, and uh, I was trying and failing at it mostly, but um, I was wondering, what what is your um, relationship with the sound designer for the Dead Space series? Or sound designers, I should maybe... Yeah, there were definitely, even the audio director, Don Vecca, um, at the beginning of Dead Space 2, the second half of Dead Space 2, it was a different audio director. But um, I knew the guys doing all the sound, and that was about the extent of the relationship. They were doing their thing, and I was doing my thing, and somehow the audio director made sense of everything and kind of put it all together. But I think Mostly it just came down to the music being, even though it wasn't a musical score, it was performed by musicians. Everything was performed by musicians. I didn't tune it down an octave or put any distortion on it or do any sort of sound design stuff. Everything was 100% recorded on the soundstage, uh, even the choir stuff. And then all the sound effects were all not that. 
So in a way, they kind of yin and yanged each other fairly well. Where it wouldn't have been as easy if it was a more sound designy score, where I'm recording things in the studio and manipulating them and you know turning them upside down and putting all these effects on them and stuff. Then you start getting super blurred lines between where's the sound effects and where's the music. Where with the Dead Space stuff, 100% natural acoustic instruments just played really, really bizarrely. Yeah, I was listening to the Dead Space 3 samples you had on your site, mm-hmm. and I would be really curious to see your scores for those, because it seems like there's just so many extended techniques and probably weird things you had to write out for the players. By the time I got around to Dead Space 3, I had sort of absorbed my maximum capability of kind of aleatoric knowledge. Uh, by no means am I saying that I knew it all, but I just couldn't... I already had so many things bouncing around in my head. I didn't want to go try to invent some other ideas. Um, the trick was, I think I did three hours of music for that game, and about 60 minutes of it were recorded live. Now, the, the whole... Dead Space 1 and 2, all the crazy techniques that you hear in the game, those were all recorded ahead of time. So I wrote them out on paper and had two or three days of recording sessions for each game spread out over a year or a year and a half. And then I took all those sessions back to my studio and cut them up and put them into contact, and I triggered them to make the music. Hmm. That's a super simple way of basically talking about driving myself crazy. And <laughs> it was just, it was a lot of work, especially the shorter sounds. And by the time I got to Dead Space 2, I was doing all these like super extended round robin multi velocity, literally building a sample library for the game. So I did that for Dead Space 1, then I did it even more granularly for Dead Space 2. By the time Dead Space 3 came around, I kind of didn't necessarily need a lot of that stuff. And as it turned out, it was a different audio director. And he wanted to do kind of some good old-fashioned live orchestra in the room together recording some music. And we did um, the London Philharmonia at Abbey Road in Studio One, so pretty much like one of the best orchestras in one of the best recording studios in the world. The trick was, I have my mock-ups done, which were pretty much the same sounds that I used for Dead Space 1 and 2, and all the aleatoric stuff sounded great because it was all these custom aleatoric things, but then I had to go back and reverse engineer it and print out scores for the players. Now Mm. we're coming back to your question about kind of what the scores look like. But fortunately, I had the same copyist and uh, an orchestrator that I've been working with for 20 years, Paul Taylor, and he helped me with a lot of that stuff. And we literally had to go back to our original scores because I'm just hitting, you know, patch number three in the woodwinds and holding down a key because I know what that does. But I don't really remember how it was notated. And it was the point where we would be on Skype and I'd have my cell phone and I'd be flipping through the scores and go, oh, wait, here it is right here. And I'd take a picture of it. It's like, it's that phrase, except it's up a fourth because I'm playing it a fourth higher than the root note. And he'd look at it and that's what he'd put in the score, the written score for the players. 
So it became a mishmash of kind of, you know, standard orchestral stuff and then every now and then some aleatoric stuff. But we had perfected the system by then. I mean, we knew in the least amount of instruction and the least amount of ink on the page how to get the exact sound we wanted. Hmm. And that was a different orchestra obviously than the first games too so that that's a good sign that it's universal yeah definitely and a lot of it um i did all i did all my research on the first one on the first dead space and there's about 10 different ways people in film mostly because that's what i could get my hands on 10 different ways they would ask the players to perform this one sound and all of them worked in some ways and then they were a little convoluted and maybe a little wordy in other ways and forget about the classical scores they have like these crazy diagrams at the beginning of the score and there's a picture that stands Mm. for this thing which has seven sentences of explanation on it that doesn't work when you're on the clock it needs to say you know play highest note as loud as possible with an x you know and 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 three f's it just needs to be super straightforward and the real trick honestly wasn't in doing the parts it was i was writing the music and i'm spitting out the final files essentially and i didn't know out of the two or three hours that i wrote i didn't know which of those cues were going to be recorded at abbey road and which of those cues were just going to be dropped in the game because for dead space one and two they just dropped everything into the game because that's what i did and if they wanted it a little slower i just slowed down the tempo you know and it, there weren't any phrases recorded there weren't any melodies it was all single notes or long extended, you know, kind of textural things. And then I had multiple velocities and I would move the controller. So if you slowed it down, everything would go slower. It, it was, it worked really, really well, but I'd never compared it to a live orchestra playing the same thing at Abbey Road. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a little disconcerting at first, but I actually ended up learning a lot because Like the other two games, I did all the final mixes for the orchestra, so I was able to bring back the Pro Tools sessions from Abbey Road and just listen to the close mics, which is what I usually end up uh, working with anyway for samples and things. Uh, Pulled up all the close mics and kind of put them through my reverb setting and a little bit of uh, Abbey Road reverb, but I literally had an apples-to-apples comparison because I didn't change anything from my cues. There was no time. I'd just get this list here's 10 of the cues we want for the live session. And I just export them. I mean, literally, they Paul took the MIDI that I did and put it on paper. So I could hear, like, the violins doing little X note head, chunk, 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 chunka, chunka, chunka. And I could hear the staging of the violins versus the cellos at Abbey Road and then hit a button and it switched to my samples, you know, with my reverb. And I could go in and tweak. I could hear how the brass sounded like, close but far back at the same time because of that amazing room and where they put the mics i could listen to my brass which i recorded at skywalker and make that adjustment so it was actually what turned it what began as one of the scariest things for me turned into one of the most useful things that i had ever done Hmm. what did you notice in like the differences between skywalker's studio versus Abbey Road. Or would it be that you noticed the difference between the players more? You know, honestly, I didn't notice a lot of difference between the players, which is saying something because my version, the MIDI version, was all samples 
and you know, dun, 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 like these pulsing string eighth notes. I mean, they're all quantized as much as I like to quantize, um, and they're they're really tight and they're really together. Same thing with the brass and Abbey Road sounded the same. I mean, I think the only the, the major difference was uh, the Skywalker stuff because I had EQ'd it and I had run it through my template with the compressors and all that kind of stuff. It sounded a little bigger, not necessarily in a good way, like like a little unrealistic. where the Abbey Road stuff sounded like Star Wars because that's what was recorded in that room. Very natural. The strings sounded really good, but the, the, it's all, it's like the mid-range and everything just sounded better at Abbey Road. I mean, I did all the percussion here, so the percussion is the same in both of them. And that kind of goes a long way to fooling your brain into thinking. And all the aleatoric stuff is live, it's just my stuff is a sampled phrase which is kind of the same thing. It's just a recording, right? Like a flute rip, as opposed to the Abbey Road flute rip just sounded, it's like it was all clear. It had more clarity and less mud in the mid-range somehow. Where my stuff, the mid-range was a little muddy and it wasn't as tight in the low end. And I suppose the percussion kind of, well, at least when I'm mixing, it seems like the percussion parts give away what room you're recording in more. Yeah, and, and they give away the, the quality or lack thereof of your reverbs. Yeah. <laughs> That's always the hardest part with percussion, I think, is the, the reverb and the stage, like where the percussion's sitting. And even the stereo is, is always tricky. If you're talking about classical orchestral percussion, you want it to sound like it's behind the orchestra, but you don't want it to be buried in reverb. In my template, I have four separate reverbs, woodwind, brass, percussion, strings, and that way I'm able to dial the reverb in on each one and balance out what the last couple of years for me has been really just a question of early versus late reflections, hmm. and sometimes processing them independently of each other so that I have a little more control. Um, even in Studio One, they they add reverb. They've got a Bricasti. Well, they have like six Bricastis or something, but they add artificial reverb for the tail, for the late reflections. So the Studio One, I mean, it's two and a half seconds of reverb or something, but it's very, like it dies away really quickly and it's really, really smooth. It's really more, uh, you know, you can even hear it in the close mics. You just, it just warms everything up in the background in a way that I've never really heard plug-in reverb do because it's a it's a it's a real space but to get that really long big tail um not 1978 star wars but you know from the mid 90s on they've got Bracastis in there set to like 
two and a half or three seconds on a decay just for the late reflections, not for the early reflections. And I mean, I've had more than one engineer at Abbey Road tell me that for them, that's the best of both worlds. Hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are coming from like a sheet music background, like classical style. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was wondering, what would you say is the most important thing for them to do if they want to try and transition into video game music? Before we mention that, I should, I want to plug um, Valhalla DSP for reverbs. Oh, yeah. They're like 50 bucks each. And I've got, I've got all of, I mean, literally, I have all of the reverb plugins, like every single one <laughs> available. And some others besides Valhalla are great for, for other things, for like effecty stuff and things like that. I have all the Lexicon plugins as well. And I actually like the Valhalla better than the Lexicon for, for real space. They're just amazing. I mean, either the Vintage Room or the... The room. I don't remember what the other. I use Vintage Room a lot, hmm. and for fifty bucks, it sounds incredible, and it's so easy to dial in, and it's got a bunch of great presets. I couldn't recommend it enough. Cool. Yeah, I've heard that name come up a ton, so I should check that out. <laughs> and and low processor too. Like it doesn't. It's not a huge hit on processor stuff. Okay. Cool. Um, I love Two C Audio as well for effects and things like Ether and and B two. But I always run it on the highest level possible. And I mean, I can pull up, pull up one of those like dual engine reverbs and it'll literally hit 50% of my CPU. Cool. It sounds you incredible. Have, but And I, I was seeing that you have like four Mac Pros running at once. <laughs> and so. I just got a new one. I got one of the trash cans a couple of months ago. Oh, um, and it, it's running great, but I mean, I did, I had, was it ether? It was, I think it was B2. Is that whatever the one that has the two engines and I had it on like some crazy 100 second, you know, reverb that was just this really more like a sound design pad than anything else, but it sounded amazing, but it was a processor hog as well. It should be. I mean, that's good, really good long reverb like that it takes a lot of compute cycles. I'm not knocking them at all. It was worth every bit of it, but I know some people, uh, can't afford to dedicate half of a entire computer just to uh, a, a reverb effect. That's where the Valhalla can help, processing yeah. wise and financially. Cool. So, so sheet music. Yeah, because you came from a classical trained background too. Um, what What were some of the things at the beginning of doing video game scoring that were challenging or things you had to learn? This this comes up a lot, and many times I'm I'm on a roundtable or I'm in a forum of some sort with other composers, and I mean I've got some some good friends that are fantastic composers that that really push video game scoring as a very unique kind of independent way of composing music, and I think in many regards it is. It depends on the titles you're working on. I have not been in the position of having to really get nerdy about implementation, implementing it myself, for example. Um, most of the games I work on, the audio director is literally putting up their hands at me saying, 
you just write really, really awesome music and we will put it in the game. I know a lot of film composers get that as well when they're brought on to score a video game. So it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because I, I agree with, uh, with my contemporaries and I'm thinking specifically, I know uh, Grant Kirkhope and James Hannigan are both big proponents of the the importance of game music being seen as its own entity, and I completely agree with them. But I've also worked with some publishers that have worked with other composers um, like Trevor Morris or Brian Tyler or Lauren Balf, and all three of them told me that they just wrote music, and the games sounded fine because they had a huge music team implementing everything. So I kind of feel like both are true. And maybe you realize by now that I'll talk for 10 minutes if you ask one question. But this one in <laughs> particular, great. I think, is, is actually really important because it doesn't matter how much you know about implementation or writing layers or stemming out music or any of these kind of video game terms. None of that matters if you can't write music well. So the first thing for me is always learning your craft. And it doesn't matter where the music is going, ultimately. This is when it's in your head and you're still thinking about it. It doesn't matter what the final medium is. If it's a film, if it's a TV show, if it's a radio show, if it's an album, if it's a video game, you've got to know how to basically see it through completion, practically on your own these days, and have it stand on its own with everything else that's out there. And a lot of that doesn't come down to what plugins you have. I mean, sure, having a, the right reverb helps and everything. Uh, it really comes down to what's, where's the, where's the visual cue? I'm pointing to my head. What's in here? What's in your head? And what's in here? What's in your heart? And those two things are what make the best video game music, in my opinion, because I'm not really talking about video game music. I'm just talking about music. You, you have to be able to feel it. And if it, it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, we're going back to the kid's panda game. Apparently, I really want to score a kid's panda <laughs> game. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a kid's game or if it's something like Dead Space or if it's something like Call of Duty or something in between that's like a, a side-scrolling adventure and it's supposed to be fun but adult-oriented in a way where kind of action-y but not dangerous. You have to know how to take those four examples of games in your head and in your heart and say something meaningful that isn't going to turn people's brain off five seconds in because either it's number one, something they've heard a thousand times before or number two, just not very interesting. And I don't think that's necessarily something you learn in school or something you learn from reading a book or watching uh, YouTube videos or anything. I think that's more something you learn from doing it, from trying it over and over and over and over and over. So now we're back to the classical musician with music on paper versus uh, something that, uh, you know, maybe Hans Zimmer would write or, or something like that. You want the music to be captivating and you want to be able to tell a story with it without any visuals. This is why I keep going back to it. It doesn't matter if it's games or whatever. You close your eyes and you don't know what the medium is and you're listening to the music and it's taking you on a journey somehow. There's a beginning and a middle and an end and there's, a, there's, there's pauses and there's tension and you kind of wait for a second and then something starts and goes in a different direction. And this can all be within a two-minute cue. 
And for me, this would be within a two-minute queue that maybe the client said, we need two minutes of combat music on the bridge. And I want to do all those things within those two minutes. Because if it's just, you know, like just constant, you know, same level of intensity with the French horns blaring, and that just turns my brain off almost immediately. I try to change it up and do something interesting and compelling, hopefully, even if I have to follow a lot of those same tropes that so many other composers have done because it works. And this is the same thing as learning the, the harmony rules, learning the rhythm rules. You learn the orchestration rules and you follow suit. You fall in line when you have to, but then when you can, you kind of go the other direction. Um, now, a lot of this goes back to what I did, which was for about seven or eight years before I got into games. I was just trying to figure out how to make my virtual orchestra sound as real as I could. And this is in the late 90s. So, I mean, I had nothing close to what a guy in high school on his laptop has right now. It was, and it cost 10 times as much. And it was just, I mean, really, really, really limited sound set. I think I had 128 megabytes of RAM for my whole orchestra. Um, And the violin patch was 135 megabytes. So literally, I had to cut everything down to get it all to fit. And I had 16, no, I think I had 32 MIDI channels because I had the expansion sampler so I could get 32 MIDI channels. But what I spent a long time doing was listening to um, mostly uh, John Williams stuff because, again, I loved orchestra. That's what I really wanted to learn. I was also a drummer. I felt at an extreme disadvantage not understanding like the harmony and the instrumentation of the orchestra. So uh, I started buying, whenever I could afford one, which was about once every six months, uh, John Williams' signature series score. And I would take that thing apart and put it back together. Uh, not necessarily with MIDI. I do phrases with MIDI. I'd put the whole, you know, first eight bars with the melody of Darth Vader's theme into the computer and try to get it to sound like the recording. And how come that doesn't sound that way? And well, it's because my trumpets suck. Well, I can't do a lot about that. So what can I do to maybe make the trumpets not suck so badly? But I spent a lot of time woodshedding and um, I wrote a lot of really lame music because I was trying but I was trying kind of in the privacy of my own home. And uh, as opposed to fast forward six years and I got my first chance to work on a game, which was a movie tie-in called King Arthur. I think that came out in 2003. This was, you know, a year before that. And literally they'd forgotten about the music. And it was just like, who can we get that could, oh, Hey, you, you look like you're holding a baton. Maybe you could uh, write some music for us. And I had my template ready. I mean, I had everything set. I'd already done like a knockoff of Princess Leia's theme and a knockoff of uh, the Endor Forest Battle and a knockoff of, uh, you know, the opening of the Tatooine queue, which is a knockoff of Rite of Spring. And I'd, I'd done all of that. And I'd researched it all and I kind of understood how to deconstruct it in my head and the template was ready to go so i just sat down the next morning and started writing music it didn't sound like john williams because it was a hans zimmer film and Mm. it needed to sound a little more like hans zimmer but the sounds were all there and the orchestration was already there in my head so i just had to knock it out Mm. and back then it was all stereo just give us a 60 second cue and give us a stinger and it was stereo, stereo, stereo. And I do a lot of that now, actually. The order was all done stereo. 
when you say in stereo, are you say are you just talking about having the orchestra split in a stereo image like it would be normally, or each track has like a stereo? Oh no, image? like a single single. When I wrote it all, I just wrote a piece of music, sure, with the idea that it was just going to be a single stereo file. Nothing, oh, nothing sure. fancy, nothing extra. You know, occasionally we do a couple of layers here and there, but it would literally be something like Sony would come back and say, well, this middle part where you've got the breakdown, it's great, and you don't have the violas playing for a while, which is wonderful. Um, let's do a separate pass and just write some sort of a textural, tense thing that's more of a sustained sound with the violas that we can bring in if needed. Sure, sure. no problem. And we just put it into the part, and we recorded it separately. But for the most part, it was just a single piece recorded live. And that's the most simple version of a big game that came out. Then you have something like Evolve, which was just me in the studio. And it wasn't really layered as much. It was just all those really, really super short pieces. Um, But now I've seen presentations, and I know guys that have done stuff. Um, Olivier is one of the examples. The stuff he did for Assassin's Creed is like outrageously complicated from an implementation standpoint. Uh, Remember Me was the same way, and he does a lot of his own implementation. So I think, yes, there is something to be said for for learning all that, but you can only go so far until you're actually applying it to something. Yeah. Um, And when you start applying it to something, if you get a gig at a developer and all of a sudden you're the composer and the arranger and you're implementing the music and you're recording the sound effects and you're implementing those and you're also the one holding the camera for the little cinematics that they're doing and then they need you to adjust the fonts for the trailer and you know you're doing all these different things you're only going to have so much time to do implementation and i think a lot of it is just learning on your feet you know maybe you've downloaded one of the third party like wise or something like that and you understand how to get around it um it's a super loaded question, obviously, because yeah. I, I just <laughs> yeah. spent 15 minutes talking about it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of curious what you gleaned from studying John Williams. Oh, uh, my gosh. I mean, I'm sure it's like an endless list, but can you think of a specific thing or two that you that surprised you, maybe, when you were looking at his scores? Everything just seems so effortless, you know? It, it's like... That was the way it had to be. And it's, it, when you listen to it, it's, it's unlike any other composers I know. I mean, when I was really studying his stuff, I'd listen to it, and it would seem really simple. I could remember what it sounded like. Not, not like the super crazy combat music, but the melodic stuff, the themes. It didn't seem like there was a lot going on. And then you start looking at the score, and it's just like, Wow. I mean, there's still, there's not 10 different things going on, and so many things are supporting other things. But, wow, just just so well done. And what I think I love the most about his writing are his melodies, which always have those huge leaps in them. It's just so memorable. And his harmony. I mean, yeah, melody and harmony. Gee, I mean, I also love his rhythm stuff. Uh, you know, the way he'll do his his strings and he changes meters and things. That's totally great. The um, what's the cue from the Lost World? I think it's just called the Hunt. It's got like it's like four four with five eight in it. The just oh my gosh, the the phrasing. 
of the brass. The the way he just oh, it just really really works. And his string writing is so lyrical. But his harmony, it's like he'll do stuff. I mean, I'll be looking at a single page from E.T. You know, like the end, the bike chase. And the French horns are just kind of bup, 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 when the bikes are jumping up and down on the hill at the beginning. And I'm looking at this French horn chord, and they're playing something like B, D, E flat, and F. It's this, you know, kind of cluster. And, I mean, this was 15 years ago I was looking at this. Like, B, D, E flat, F, B, D, E flat, F. It's like a D, it's like a B diminished with a major, no, it's like a, is it a D with a flat net? I couldn't figure out what it was, and there's no bass. I mean, there's, there's no root going on anywhere, and it turns out the general function is C minor. It's just a, like a C minor major seven you know, with a fourth in there. Hmm. And that's when I first started realizing how much of his stuff was really jazz-based. Even the action stuff is actually jazz. And that's hmm. how he started. He was a pianist. He was a amazing, he still is, an amazing pianist. And he played jazz stuff like... I mean, oh. flames coming off of his fingers, some of the stuff in the, in the 50s and 60s was amazing he was a session player as a pianist too he played the piano in uh, peter gunn he was a piano player huh cool so you think of a jazz piano player i mean someone like chick korea or someone like that and then you plug in orchestration where i i heard a, a quote from him where he said by the time he had graduated high school he had already read every orchestration book there was like four times over and he was looking for other methods of you know soaking in knowledge and I thought, I didn't even own one orchestration book in high school, let alone had read through and absorbed all of them. I mean, he probably knew more in high school than I'll ne- ever know as an adult about orchestration. So you take that kind of orchestration knowledge and those kind of chops as a piano player. Yeah, no wonder he's playing a, a C, C minor, major seven, uh, add four, you know, um, because he's a piano player. He's just like, you know, he's just grabbing some keys and playing something that sounds cool and then putting it in the orchestra. That's why his melodies sound so great. He's doing these little leaps, you know, with his finger, octaves in the hands, no problem. But it's all also really, really idiomatic for the instruments. I saw him conduct the Pittsburgh Symphony at Heinz Hall, um, which is at the time, 10 years ago, was the highest paid symphony in the country. They were phenomenal. And we went to a rehearsal and he was uh, conducting the rehearsal, got to meet him afterwards, which is amazing. And also talked to some of the musicians Hmm. because these books were, I mean, just ink everywhere. And I mean, the musicians were working hard. And I talked to like, you know, oboe player, harp player, cellist, violist, and all of them basically said, Every piece has parts in it that are almost impossible to play. Just, just if, if, if it were a little faster or a little higher, you know, or, or the notes were a little further apart, we really couldn't do it. They're almost impossible, but it all works great. And every piece, like, there's always one or two spots that just pushes just a little bit. Hmm. And that's, that's just... Cool. That's what you get when you're 86. I don't know how old he is now. I have, when you're as old as he is and you've done it for so long... Um, 
That's that's what I love about his stuff. And then, you know, I was looking at Batman by Danny Elfman, which is another score I love, but I'm looking, it's like uh, C, E flat, G, C, E flat, G, C, E flat, G, all C's and the low strings. I think this is a C minor chord. <laughs> you know, <laughs> huh. it couldn't get more triadic, and, and Jerry Goldsmith's the same way, but he uses the harmony a completely different way. He does all that whole median relationship with, like, modulating minor thirds and borrowing, like, minors from the parallel... F- oh, he... That's a that's another whole way of thinking about music, the way Goldsmith harmonizes things. Um, but Williams is just complicated and sophisticated, but it works. And I don't think I don't think anyone's ever gonna do it the same way because no one's gonna have the same kind of background he did. You yeah. Know? Huh. Do you think he'll ever retire? <laughs> no. <laughs> he's. I mean, he's gonna just. I mean, how many guys have we? unfortunately seen pass away uh still working in you know o- older not not like horner i mean goldsmith and uh, michael Kamen was was younger but elmer bernstein i mean all these guys they're not doing it for the money hans zimmer is going to be the same way he's not doing it for the money he's doing it because he's got a lot of friends that need music and he loves writing music mm-hmm. that's that's the great thing if you can find a niche n- niche spot if you can find a spot for yourself, for your voice, whatever it is you sound like, and people want you to write music for them, it's not a job. I mean, it's it's like why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I'm 65 or 70, I might slow down a little bit. Maybe I'm not doing three or four minutes a day, five days a week, uh, <laughs> so many weeks out of the year. Maybe I'm being a little more picky, but I'm never going to retire. I'm never going to stop. What would I do? <laughs> like this is what I love. Yeah. Why would I stop doing what I love? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to miss my fan questions or I should say your fan questions that I got from <laughs> on people on Twitter. Cool. So, just a couple um just a couple of fans. <laughs> <laughs> my three fans. Yeah. Let's hear it. <laughs> um John Lindsay at John Composes. Um, is wondering, in your opinion, what are the most rewarding and the most difficult parts to scoring video games? The most rewarding thing about composing for games is when you meet someone at a convention or on the street uh, when I'm traveling or something, and they just start gushing about how much they love the music to a particular game. Because the beauty of games Unlike a film, which will last for two hours and you get, you know, 60 or 90 minutes of music, a game's going to be 10, 20, 30, 50 hours of experience, and it's got lots and lots of music in it. So these players have really lived with the score for a while, and the fact that they don't find it annoying or want to turn <laughs> it off is very, very rewarding. I mean, that's ultimately the only reason I'm doing all of this stuff is if I can get 1% achievement for someone else, what, you know, listening to John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith or anything like that does for me when I hear it, if I can just do 1% of that for other people, then it's like mission accomplished. Um, The most challenging, it's probably one of the things I love the most about it, uh, again, but it's just the number of minutes that need to be done. It's it's a lot. It's like two, three, four hours of music, and a lot of times, 
most of the time, okay, hardly you, all the time, <laughs> all the time, it's it's never really structured in a way where you're like, oh, cool, I can make, you know, I can kind of enjoy working on this. I always enjoy it, but you can never really sit back and enjoy it. It's always like, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, and and until then, it's waiting. So it's like feast or famine basically you're you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're conceptualizing and then you get the green light and oh by the way we're finishing up a month and a half earlier than you originally thought so you've got a whole lot of music to do in a short amount of time and it's not creatively um frustrating for me as much as it is physically frustrating in terms of like production quality and like attention to detail which is something that i would like to be able to maybe spend some more time on some scores, not necessarily others. When it's being done by a live orchestra, all bets are off. I can do anything I want. When I'm doing it all myself, sometimes, a lot of times, there's stuff in my head that I want to get into the piece that I think would sound really cool. And, nope, I mean, I'm looking at the clock and I've got an hour left and the cue's got to be on the FTP by the end of the day so they can put it in the game tomorrow morning. And then, that's it. You know, no more changes, no more corrections. And I've learned, it's not... I don't agonize over it, but I do wish I had more time sometimes. Ryan Ike at Ryan Ike Composer is wondering, do you have enough animals at your house yet to recreate the Prince Ali scene from Aladdin? (laughs) (laughs) We probably do. We just got got another dog that we rescued from a shelter um, like two days ago. And we got two more cats last week, actually. They were going to be uh, put down. The local SPCA put out a plea on uh, Twitter and Facebook, I think, because um, they're just full. And they said, we have these two older cats. I mean, they're like nine, maybe, eight or nine. And they're paired up, and nobody wants them because they're old, and they kind of come as a pair. And we just have them, you know, hanging around the house now. But between that, geez, let's see. What's in the menagerie? Um, I got a tortoise for my birthday. Oh, now, right now, if you make an okay sign with your fingers, that's about how big he is. He's like oh. thir- 30 grams. I mean, he's tiny. But it takes him like 15 years to reach full growth, which is good. He'll be in the house for a while. We've got a tortoise and uh, four dogs, uh, two cats now. Plus, I've, I've got a bird that sits on my shoulder most of the time uh, in the studio. And then we have an aviary with probably another 20 or 30 uh, birds in there and then we've got um like little birds like finches and parakeets and things and then we've got parrots like you know there's an african gray here let me see her oh (laughs) one of our many parrots cool yeah i think the answer is yes (laughs) i interviewed someone who has a gray parrot and he was saying that the parrot started learning melodies and would start improvising along when he would play guitar uh yeah do you have any (laughs) does that ever become an issue in your studio having so many birds around no i i'll have two out here at the most now what is interesting today this piece i was doing had these kind of reversed crazy chanty creepy vocals in it and she she was in here earlier as well and she started making Noises I've never heard her make before, like these crazy kind of clicky things and these high squeaks. And then she was whistling along a lot. African greys are very musical. They whistle, I mean, like better than I've ever heard any person whistle. And she started whistling along, singing all kinds of different things. They're 
I mean, yeah, it makes sense, but I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for how musical all these birds really are. Yeah. Huh. Well, on my podcast, I have a, a question chain going. Um, so the last interviewee asked you a question. His question is, if you were going to donate your music and talents towards a cause, what would that cause be? So see, the my predicament is I had about ten different animal places run through my head uh, just <laughs> then. Um, let's just be general about it and say something to help animals. Cool, you know, some sort of, and not necessarily an SPCA because I know they need help as well, but something to help the more exotic animals. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, one other thing I put out to people on the show if they have the time to um, to come up with like a little short intro theme for their episode 10 to 20 seconds whatever style boy I wish that I could I wish I could get like um, you know give give me give me until tomorrow because I think if I remember if I'm awake enough in the morning I'll get my phone and uh, and record the jungle sounds that we hear when we come downstairs before everyone's had breakfast, and that will be my intro piece. All right, perfect. <laughs> That'll be fun. All right, cool. Well, uh, Jason, any last things you want to plug? Any new projects or or are they all super secret? Oh, uh, you know they're <laughs> they're always so super secret. I mean, you mentioned Emily Reese, so. I wouldn't mind actually plugging June Media, her new podcast thing, because it's all kinds of awesome. And I'm not just saying that because I was uh, one of the people on the first episode that she did. It really is. If anyone listened to Top Score, which was equally amazing, where she interviewed game composers and, I mean, all of my friends and talked about all kinds of stuff that I learned so much from every episode she did. Now she's branching out and she's talking to audio directors and sound designers as well as game composers. And this is something she's going to be doing weekly. Yeah. Emily does a great job highlighting all that stuff. So I would say everybody go check her out. Yeah. I I was actually in episode two. (laughs) Well, see, there you go. Honored to be. I I got kind of lucky on that, but she lives here in minnesota too so yeah. i've gotten to connect with her a little bit so perfect then we're there we're one twoing on the uh on the june media publicity yeah <laughs> cool well thanks again jason thank you yeah. very much charlie I, I feel a little remiss because i didn't get to say thanks for having me at the beginning when you uh kicked the show off but i was i was a little brain dead the juices hadn't been flowing quite yet so thanks for having me yeah, no problem. I could totally edit that into the beginning if I want to. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah, Charlie, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, could I get a few more takes of that, actually? Uh, <laughs> just in the goofiest voices you can muster. Oh, boy. Um, See, that, that, that's where you need to have the birds come in and, and, and do voices, because they do talk. My, my favorite one... Um, We've got a little parrot inside that talks a lot, and she, you walk in the room, and she goes, "What you doing?" And you say, "Oh, well, hey, I'm just, uh, I'm just, you know, what, what's going with you?" Oh, baby. 
<laughs> oh, baby. She'll say that all the time. Oh, baby. Where did she pick that one up from? I don't know. I mean, they, they'll hear, literally, I'll say something and she'll repeat it immediately. She's quite the mimic. So, I, she could have heard it from me. You, you never hmm. know. And then we had, a, we had another African gray. I mean, I'm totally off topic. We had another African gray. So they mimic their owners. And African grays especially, they not only mimic your speech, but they mimic the way you sound. So if you're a four-foot-tall, tiny, tiny woman with a really high voice, that's what they're going to sound like. If you're a huge basketball player with a huge voice, that's what they're going to sound like. And we huh. had an African gray that was this little teeny tiny African gray. And whenever she stepped up on your finger, she'd go, Yo! <laughs> with this really deep like yo which is really <laughs> funny but but like a wink like a wink and a you know like shooting the little finger gun like yo it's pretty funny weird huh well do you, i never expected the interview to end with parrot talk but that's a good place to end it i that think that sounds so. like a good name for your next podcast series parrot yeah. talk <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Composer Quest with Jason Graves. You can check out more of his music at jasongraves.com. Thanks again to Jason for taking the time out of his busy composing schedule to talk with me. Also, thanks to Greg O'Connor-Reed at Top Dollar PR for arranging the interview. Our question of the week is, what is your favorite John Williams score? I'm not even sure how you can narrow it down to just one, but feel free to give it a shot at forum.composerquest.com. I'll leave you now with more of Jason Graves' score from The Order, 1886. Fun fact about this score, Jason uses a very select group of instruments to give it a unique sound. There's no brass and no high woodwinds. Instead, Jason picked strings, low men's voices, three bassoons, three contra bassoons, and three bass clarinets. Pretty cool. This cue is called Galahad's Theme. <laughs>